The X-Files is back, Pluto has glaciers, and what do cattle mutilations have to do with UFOs? It's all right now on UFO Mod Pod. And welcome to UFO Mod Pod. I'm Jason McClellan. I'm Ryan Sprague. And I'm Maureen Ellsbury. Thanks for joining us yet again. Let's start the show off by discussing some of the UFO related stories that have been in the news lately. <music> Guys, of course, we've got to start off with the X Files. This is our first episode since the premiere happened two weeks ago, right after we had done, or I guess the same day that uh, the last episode aired. But uh, we finally get to talk about the X-Files revival. The X-Files is back on Sunday, January 24th. The hit conspiracy-oriented paranormal show returned to television, much to all of our happiness. <laughs> At the time uh, we're recording this right now, three episodes of the six-episode revival have aired. And this was very interesting, and it spawned so many headlines, and it's still spawning headlines on January 24th. The CIA took to Twitter and said, take a peek into our X-Files. Five docs for Mulder and five docs for Scully. The truth is out there. The organization also, interestingly, posted top ten tips for investigating flying saucers. That's fun, and uh, it was cool to see the CIA getting in on all of this crazy X-Files hype. But frustratingly, but not surprisingly, massive misreporting by the media. So, again, <laughs> every media outlet what? in the world, it seemed, was reporting about this, about the CIA and their X-Files and everything. And, of course, they're reporting it like this is something new. Oh, the... Daily Mail is an example saying the truth is out there. CIA releases thousands of declassified X-Files on aliens, flying saucers, and other unexplained phenomena. And good old Fox News. Fox News saying real-life X-Files? CIA posts trove of UFO documents. So all of these media outlets are reporting this like it's something brand new. When it's not, uh, these files have been available since the 70s and, you know, a little poking and prodding since then to get them actually fully released. But these are not new files. The CIA did not just release them, and they've had them available like the FBI does in their vault. These organizations have had these UFO files on their website, easily searchable by people. This is not a new thing. But that's what everybody's reporting. So it, it seems like a big thing. And I guess it's good because it is getting attention. And a lot of people are saying, what? The CIA has UFO files? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we saw this, guys, what, a couple years ago when the CIA uh, declassified, quote unquote, declassified files on Area 51. Mm -hmm. Same thing. These files had been declassified and uh, available to the public like 20 years prior to that. So, uh, well, again... We, we just have to look at this as a way to get more clicks on websites. Even the CIA, they're hungry for people to go to that website. You know, I'm sure there's some sort of revenue coming from that. So, uh, and, and yeah. I think the, the, the big thing with the, the Area 51 document that the reason it spawned so many headlines was because they finally redacted the name Area 51. The documents had been out. Right. 
but the official name, Area 51, had not. Yeah, so, so the details of, of what was being reporting weren't accurate, like right. this. I mean, people just kind of briefly saw the CIA talking about, hey, look at our X-Files, and then yeah. they assumed from there that it was something that had just been released. <laughs> It still but, sounds so dirty when you're saying it like that. Look at the X-Files. Oh, yeah. Look at it. That's how they want you to look at it. But I do have to tip my hat to one of my favorite media outlets and websites, Space.com, for responsibly reporting on this story because they did point out that these were things that had been released before. And their headline simply stated or states, the truth is out there. CIA publishes UFO investigation tips. And that was the news. That's fantastic. Yeah, responsible journalism at its best. Yeah. So that that little giant nugget, I guess, that's occupying the news so much. Let's talk X-Files, guys. What do you think about the revival of the series so far? We've seen half of what's coming, three out of the six episodes. Opinions? Let me preface this, this by saying I am enjoying them. However, I – and I'm not going to stop watching them. I have some big issues with the revival, especially the premiere episode. And I understand mm. they're trying to cram a lot in, especially for these new generations of people that haven't really seen this before. But my problem is, is basically, you know, Mulder was steadfast throughout all the seasons that something was going on. And then all of a sudden this one girl says, uh, you know, it wasn't aliens, it was humans. And he's like, oh, Oh, everything she's the key to everything. She's yeah. the key to everything. And within <laughs> one word, his entire uh, notion shifts. When has he ever been that flighty? Um, so I was a little bit annoyed with that. And they kind of just tried to toss out the whole mythology in a sense. Um, and, and in episode three, the last episode that aired, also you see Mulder really – not believing anything anymore, kind of done with everything. You know, wait a second. How can you forget everything that you've been through in your life? You've seen like, a thousand monsters. You've seen like, monsters. You've seen monsters. You've seen You've aliens. had it proven to you. You've experienced this stuff through your lifetime. Right. Like, you don't just go, I don't know. What have we been doing? I don't think it's real. These all can be explained. Yeah. And, and even a, Scully, wait, too. Yeah. Scully at the same yeah. point. You know, like she's seen it all, too. And, well, and a lot of stuff was, she didn't explain away. So that that was something mm-hmm. that's that's always kind of existed with Scully. Yeah. Well, Through yes. the whole series, she would be skeptical. And you're like, wait a second. You've experienced that yourself. You've seen that yourself. How can you still be so, you know, so resistant? I think I think it's just more she has a smirky grin on her face yeah. when she's saying like Mulder. You're believing this stuff again. It's like, can you? I'm sorry. There have been so many crazy ass monsters that they have not been able to prove what was going on yeah. with. And then, oh, there you go. And then the new, I do think this is interesting and it's true to the UFO field is in the uh, Mulder and Scully meet the Wearman episode when she comes down and he's in the office and he's flipping through files and he's like, guess what? You know, this monster in this place turns out to be this and this Mm -hmm. and that, you know, and it's, it's all based on the fact that there are a lot of cases that were unsolved in the past that have been solved since then. um, Thanks to reopening cases and um, the internet and other things (laughs) and people being very um, decisive and analytical about what they're looking at. So that, I mean, 
yes and no, but I hate how he just throws everything away. Right. And the first yeah. episode, you know, I think that was received pretty well with the, the UFO audience simply because it was filled with a lot of quote unquote facts and, and things <laughs> that were, were taken from UFO lore. Um, you know, actual cases and just a lot of information overload. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was, just this, this, this cram packed much. of like UFO information, UFO information, you know, all quote unquote real stuff. So that was, you know, very, very much a nod to the UFO audience. They ate it up, loved that, was kind of uh, acknowledging them. So that was fun. And what's funny is that episode three being a uh, Monster of the Week episode. A lot of the UFO crowd I saw um, really disgusted by that episode. For fans of the series, I think most real fans of the X-Files or fans for what it is appreciated that episode because, guys, that's really what a lot of the X-Files is. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, a little bit of comedy. I mean, that was a goofball episode, and that's what a lot of the X-Files episodes have been over the years. Well, and they yeah. always – they had, like – I mean, there was a good five or six that were supposed to be even more tongue-in-cheek uh, comedic, and mm -hmm. um, this episode happened to be written by uh, the person that was penning those as well. So it was kind of supposed, yeah, it was supposed to be that way. Um, and I think it's hilarious, you know, they have um, these other characters we know so well pr playing primary leads in this, and it's uh, it was fun, but although odd. <laughs> so something that was cheeseball over the top is how Mulder has my ringtone. You know, he's got yeah. the X-Files theme. It's my ringtone too. Yeah. yeah. I know. That so was, that, that was really cheesy, but it I, was, I, it was fun. It was fun. It was but, possibly the most self-aware episode they've yes. done yet. And Darren Morgan, the writer, guys, we know he's done Jose Chung's From Outer Space. He did the... Mm -hmm. uh, the cockroach one, which he I did humbug, can't watch. He? he did humbug, yeah. I cannot watch that cockroach one to this day. <laughs> um, that being said, like without Darren Morgan's humorous take on the X Files, I don't think the show would be where it is today. Because that's what draws in the mainstream. Yeah, we like the serious mythology, but come on, we yeah. cannot take this all so seriously. So, without <laughs> that episode three, I think we would be in big trouble. Yeah, and, and there there was so many Easter eggs in that episode <laughs> for X-Files fans. Um, Kim Manners' grave, who was, you know, he was a producer in, in mm -hmm. uh, let's see, The Ringtone and uh, Scully with the Dog. I mean, there's just so many little nuggets yeah, in there. Yeah, Cold Chats, Night Stalker. Yeah, yeah <laughs> if, that if you are a diehard X-Files fan, you would notice and appreciate. Yeah. Here's the uh, funny thing about... Mulder's uh, cell phone issues in, in episode three. <laughs> and that's, I, I think, a little bit of one of my, my qualms with the, the revival is that they're kind of presenting it like Mulder and Scully were put in a box and locked up yeah. after the X-Files <laughs> went agree. off the air. And now they were just released and they're experiencing this new world and they've, they've lost, you know, the past many years. Yeah. And they're all, what is this? A cell phone? Wow. New technology. <laughs> like they weren't frozen. Maybe they were, maybe they were frozen in some box in the FBI's basement, but it's just presented <laughs> that way that like, Oh, they're, they're so out of touch because they've been gone so many years. Well, and, and I think now they're like playing up the cell phone thing a little too much, like in the fact that 
Yeah, we have Restarter be working in a cell phone store, and yes. uh, <laughs> that episode. Yeah, it's kind of they're going there. They're they're going full speed. <laughs> yeah, and that's what do you guys fine. Think of the uh, the remaining three, I hear we're getting some more character development. We're going to yeah. find out more about what happened between Mulder and Scully in these years prior. You know, if they weren't frozen in a box and. Uh, members of their family. I know we're going to get some more characters that we've been hungry to see again. So William's going to play a big role. I know. So. Apparently, yeah. Maybe yeah, not a I, big role, but definitely a role. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to see where it's going. And I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this can't be it. This six episodes. I feel like there there's something behind this. Whether it's a reboot, whether it's another movie. You know, C- Carter said that he's already written a third movie uh, concept, um, and that he also wants to continue on TV. So again, it's going to depend on ratings and money and schedules. Blah blah blah. Um, but I honestly think there is something something behind these six episodes, and we're going right. to find out soon. Um, if I'm think- wrong, I'm wrong, but. I think there's been comments about both um, from Jillian Anderson saying that maybe they'd do more. And then also they're going to be introducing a new pair of FBI agents. We know that. So it, it there has been a lot of rumors about the reboot and then focusing on these new agents. So um, a lot of stuff's put in place for sure. Right. So we'll so, see what so we'll happens. See. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But I but will say, you know, oh. be, be, being a fan of the series, obviously, or being fans of the, the series, we're certainly going to be kind of nitpicky and, and uh, highlighting the things that we don't really like with what they've done. But that being said, I'm still very happy it's back and having fun going through it. Yeah. Exactly. The fact we're having this conversation. Says That's it all. right. I want to talk about something else now. And this is uh, kind of an ongoing thing that we've followed for so many years now, but Tom DeLonge has finally lifted the veil of secrecy from his long-teased UFO-related pro- project, and it's called Secret Machines. If you follow Tom DeLonge and, and his uh, UFO efforts for a good year now, he's been posting on Instagram and Twitter uh, various photos from all these different secret places he's been going to and talking about how he's working on this big project and he can't wait to announce it to the world and it's something to do with space well they finally sort of pulled the lid off some of what is related to this project back on wednesday february 3rd to the stars that's the long's production company slash strange factory they issued a press release announcing the company's latest property secret machines is described as a transmedia series launching first with a novel titled Secret Machines, Book One, Chasing Shadows. Now, although this is fiction, the first book in a series of three is reportedly based on real events. The Two the Stars describes that Chasing Shadows is a complex and thrilling read based on facts and actual events gleaned from the author's sources within the military and intelligence community. The book follows the witnesses, which are legions scattered across the world and dotted through history, people who looked up and saw something impossible lighting up the night sky. What those objects were, where they came from, and who, or what, might be inside them is the subject of fierce debate and equally fierce mockery, so that most who glimpsed them came to wish they hadn't. Most, but not everyone. The novel essentially features four different plot lines, one that follows a pilot, one that follows an heiress, 
one that follows a journalist, and one that follows a prisoner of war. To the Stars describes that each will be propelled into a dark labyrinth of otherworldly technology and the competing aims of those who might seek to prevent or harness the source of unfathomable power. DeLong says he wanted to tackle the subject of unidentified aerial phenomena because it seems so unbelievable. He continues, I knew the story was fantastic, regardless if you believed it or not. This is the one topic that could tackle religion, cosmology, science, history, politics, secrecy, and more. After taking over a year to meet, prove myself, and acquire eight elite advisors, each of whom has held the highest position within the military, scientific, and executive branch offices, this story contains true information from a secret historical record, some of which has never been heard until now. Now, UFOs, extraterrestrials, conspiracy theories, these are some of DeLong's well-known interests outside of his artistic endeavors. Having studied UFOs and related topics for more than 20 years, he's not messing around. As we've mentioned before, DeLong is a genuine UFO scholar and researcher. He co-authored this book with New York Times bestselling author and Shakespeare professor A.J. Hartley. The Secret Machines franchise will not just be books. It's going to include new music from DeLong's band Angels and Airwaves more fiction and nonfiction books, as well as a documentary film that Tom's been working on for quite a while now. Secret Machines Book One, Chasing Shadows, releases April 5th, but it's currently available for pre-order at tothestars.media. And Maureen and I have both read this book, and i got to say, I mean, I'm glad to see this stuff finally come out, but I am still waiting to see what he does with the nonfiction aspect of this. I mean, I love fiction reading and this is a fun book and it's packed with serious research i mean the the amount of research that hartley did on this the details that are in it specifically uh, military details and, and technological details that were gleaned from these insider military sources it's pretty at times overwhelming reading it uh, just seeing the, the kind of research that went into it but I want to see the nonfiction stuff and I want to see this documentary that he's been working on because he has been meeting with some pretty high up secret people and specifically someone we recently talked about on the show, John Podesta. You know, John Podesta is somebody that uh, I would love to meet and have a chat with, but Tom DeLonge has been uh, doing that himself and that will all supposedly come out in a documentary sometime. So we'll wait and... uh, Oh, that comes out soon. And I bet you that there have been 800 revisions since we read what we did. So I'm sure you're in for a whole new book. That's another property from Tom DeLonge and uh, one on a subject that we all like, UFOs. And uh, even beyond that, conspiracies and military secrets. So we'll see what happens with all of that. But he's certainly getting some headlines for that. And that's good to see. Guys, let's talk something that you both know I'm really excited about, and that's astrobiology. There's been lots of, or or at least a couple of pretty interesting astrobiology developments in recent weeks. Uh, let's start with Mars, because there's always interesting stuff going on with Mars. In 2008, NASA's Spirit rover found strange cauliflower-shaped nodules of a mineral called opaline silica on Mars. This is a pretty common mineral, but... It's the shape that makes it bizarre. Well, researchers at Arizona State University examined similar mineral deposits here on Earth in Chile's Atacama Desert. They looked there because the Atacama Desert, the landscape is is similar to that of Mars. And they found these things 
that looked like what they found on Mars. And based on their research, they believe the weird cauliflower on Mars was likely formed by microbes, adding further evidence that life of some sort at least used to live on Mars and may still be there today. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, we keep seeing more and more uh, possibility of, you know, firm evidence of life on Mars. I'm pretty sure that there was definitely life on Mars at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel a little confident in saying that. But it'd be more interesting to find this definitive proof now. Yeah, and absolutely. But with the, you know, all these all these studies that keeps coming out and, and new research, all the indicators are there that it was habitable at some point and could quite possibly still be habitable. We'll say it again. I mean, the best place for life on Mars, at least life as we know it, is subsurface because it's shielded from uh, the harsh environment of Mars. But, uh, yeah, got to roll those robots into the holes, man. That's where you're going to find it. You and your lava tubes. <laughs> yep, that's right. Now let's talk Pluto. Pluto is – it's unbelievable how we're finally getting this wealth of information from Pluto. Poor Pluto, you know, all the way out there and not even a planet. But well. <laughs> it's becoming a very exciting world. And, you know, you don't have to be a planet to be exciting. I mean we know from our own solar system that – Non-planets are some of the most exciting places, are the most exciting places and promising places for uh, the possibility of life. I mean, we have Enceladus and Europa and Titan, you know, moons and even Charon. But, you know, these moons are some of the better places. So little dwarf planet Pluto out there um, is getting more and more interesting with the information we're receiving. And let's see. I mean, we've already heard about water ice and blue skies on Pluto. But recent information says that water ice is widespread on Pluto. Pluto is viewed as being alive with tectonics and mountain ranges and what are essentially glaciers. These glaciers are basically hills of water ice floating on a sea of frozen nitrogen. A lot of crazy stuff going on with Pluto. And I mean, this is data that we're just getting in now and we're going to continue getting new data as they're exploring Pluto. But guys... There could be aliens on Pluto. Who would have thought? In, living in ice castles. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's very Adventure Time-esque. It is. It really is. Um, and it's, it's exciting news, and poor Pluto yeah. needed, a little, uh, needed a little upbeat. Ego Pluto's, boost, right? Pluto, yeah. Pluto's getting a lot of love lately, and I'm, I'm yeah. glad to see it. That's well, great. In our effort to provide a modern introduction to the UFO phenomenon for a new generation, on each episode of UFO Mod Pod we highlight a historical UFO case. And because it was referenced in the premiere episode of The X-Files, we're highlighting the Kelly Cahill incident of 1993. Give us the rundown of this case, Ryan. Sure. On August 8th, 1993, 27-year-old Kelly Cahill, her husband, and three children were driving home after a visit to a friend's house in the Dog foothills of Victoria, Australia, when they first noticed the lights of a cylindrical craft hovering in the night sky. The craft appeared to have windows, and Cahill claimed she could see figures moving about inside of the craft. She reacted with a loud scream, and within seconds, the craft immediately darted off out of sight. They continued to drive down the road when they came upon another light in the sky, but this time it was blinding. She was terrified of the light, but within moments, Cahill found herself relaxed, calmed, and her husband was driving down the road still. 
What happened? Did I black out? She asked her husband. He didn't respond. They drove home, and Cahill started to feel as though some time had been missing between when she was she saw the blinding light and when she went from sheer panic to pure calmness. For the next few weeks, Cahill suffered severe stomach pain and uterine infections. Doctors also found a strange triangular mark on her navel that she was convinced was never there before. Slowly, by her own recollection, Cahill was able to piece together memories from what she claimed was missing time that night in the car. Her memories included her husband having stopped the car near a gully of a nearby field, where a massive craft was hovering. They approached the craft with no hesitation, almost like they were being pulled toward it. Cahill also recalled another vehicle being stopped on the side of the road. More on that later. As they moved closer, they both witnessed a tall entity, dark in appearance with glowing red eyes. Cahill stood fixated on the entity when her husband noticed others behind it. Heaps of them, as Cahill would later describe. One of the entities moved towards them while a group of the other entities began to approach the other vehicle on the side of the road. Cahill could no longer take it, screaming for the entities to leave them alone. And in that moment, she remembers blacking out, and the next thing she knew, she found herself back in the car with her husband driving down the road. As time progressed, Cahill began to remember extremely intrusive examinations taking place on her, including one of these red-eyed beings floating over her nude body, kissing her navel. She would then recall several other embarrassing procedures these entities performed on her. The story soon caught international attention and was so supposedly even corroborated by the occupants in the other vehicle that Cahill remembered seeing on the side of the road that night. They would come forward to describe almost the same exact story, including witnessing these ominous dark entities with glaring red eyes. Cahill was considered a reliable, honest person by those who knew her at the time of this strange sighting. Her case continues to be examined by those in the UFO research community, sparking much debate on what actually occurred that August in Victoria, Australia, even being brought up in the premiere episode of the new season of The X-Files. How much did I just pay to listen to that audiobook? <laughs> that was great. <laughs> you, you should do voiceovers for, for uh, novels. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's my theater background coming out, guys. Yeah. So... Obviously, th this case has uh, a lot of people polarized, I would say. Um, there's a lot of people who think this is one of the greatest alien abduction cases of all time. Mm -hmm. As and well as one of the greatest Australian UFO-related right. cases, which is pretty crazy because Australia's had a lot, of, a lot of big stuff happen. But Yeah, and then there are the others that are recognizing that there are a lot of holes in this case. Mm-hmm. Yes. A lot, uh, including missing investigation reports. There was apparently a very thorough investigation done. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, it sounds like there's a mountain of evidence and lots mm -hmm. of witnesses and great investigations done. So no proof there's of lots it. of supporting stuff here that, that sounds great on the surface. But, yeah, where is it? Yeah, and, and this organization is apparently uh, maybe not totally in existence or not we're, we're not sure it's it's kind of um i have some severe issues w with that because you can say you have all this information and you can say you went to the doctor and and this happened and this happened but if you're going to come forward with this information there's got to be some proof it can't just be word of like well this 
this happened and it was weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, some of the most incredible elements to this story are the the claims of, you know, all of this physical stuff happening, all the health problems and the, the doctor visits and, you know, the, the conversations with the doctors and what the doctors were saying. Mm-hmm. But Trace evidence. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have any proof of that, that's just somebody telling a story. It may have happened, but you've got nothing to back it up with, then, you know, it's just a story. Right. And I mean, they they say that they have the cooperation of these other witnesses. That's fine. But again, like, where's the documentation? How do we know that uh, Kelly did not speak to these other people beforehand? Mm -hmm. Again, Maureen, I think you make a good point. It comes down to who originally researched this case and where is the source coming from? We don't know of this research organization. We don't even know the investigator on the case. Um, This could be some phantom organization created by Kelly. Cahill herself. Who knows? Um, Again, witness testimony is not enough to go on. And saying that you've been interviewed by the newspaper or on television, that is not evidence. That's not proof. That's only continuing to to tell the story. And and I know like a lot of people have brought up on uh, forums of this case I've seen in the past that, well, you know, she describes um, this different kind of, of being that, you know, she describes them as these black soulless things with red eyes, but they're, they're shapes. And, and that say, well, you know, that's been reported in other cases. Well, that's okay. But, you know, you can hear what other people report. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, it wasn't like this was in the 1920s or, or prior to that, where it was hard to hear um, cases like this. So, I mean, I don't, I don't go on that as being proof that that what she saw was true or whether this is a hoax i will say this that people that suggest because she transformed aka went from looking a little frumpy to a much better looking <laughs> like saucy woman that that's the reason it's a hoax i think that's a little stretch um you know we all transform a little bit <laughs> some of us n- not but um we've had Remarks from the husband allegedly in the past, but then um, since then, nothing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Fishy. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, guys, I think we, we can all admit we don't want to debunk cases. Like, that's not what we're here to do. But when you don't have evidence, like, this is just another story to all of us. And uh, again, the quote we always live by, you know, extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. And we just we don't seem to have it here. But right. Who knows? Maybe we'll get that smoking gun someday. And if not, we'll always have the X-Files. Right. This. So, yeah, this is a case where it hasn't solidly been debunked. It's not solidly been proved. So it lies in that sort of no man's land right now. Yeah. But there are. Red flags there, and uh, yep. we've pointed those out, so keep those in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a very strange and very sad phenomenon that pop culture associates with UFOs and extraterrestrials. We're talking about animal mutilation cases, specifically cattle mutilation. We hung out with our friend and colleague, paranormal investigator and animal mutilation specialist Chuck Zukowski, to hear about a recent mutilation case he investigated and to get his take on what it is about these strange cases that has some believing there is an extraterrestrial connection.
Chuck. We are so happy to have you on the show. It's been a while since we've all had a chance to hang out. So here we are all together. This is going to be fun. Oh, I can't wait. I've been looking forward to this all week. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you know, we've had a chance to spend some time with you over the years, and we've talked a lot about the many interesting things that uh, that you do. You are a paranormal investigator, and you've done some fantastic and fascinating investigations over the years. And uh, a lot of people know you from your animal mutilation investigations that you've done. And I've got to ask, how long have you been investigating animal mutilations and really what got you involved in that? Well, I think it's part of my last name, Zoo Cow. <laughs> so I think I was destined to do cattle mutilation investigations. You know, um, actually, <laughs> um, I, ever since I started investigating and re well, actually first started researching UFOs, Animal mutilations pops up from time to time, and there's always uh, some type of UFO sighting seen um, either before or, or after a mutilation, and that's always fascinated me. So it was a God, it's been a few years uh, ago that I was researching animal mutilations and went to Missouri and did an investigation with my sister Debbie, who was uh, 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 she's a director with MUFON, and uh, while we were doing an investigation on UFOs. Lo and behold, there was a mutilation that had occurred in that area, you know, just months prior. And so uh, it, that's, it's really interesting how they seem to tie in some way or another. I'm not quite sure how, but, you know, I have my own theories. But mutilations, I guess, God, it pretty much started about the same time I really got serious about doing this. It's been about you know, 32, 33 years, somewhere around there. 34 years. So, you know, before that, it was just kind of research and just kind of reading books. But you know, I really got serious around 30 years ago. All right. And uh, do you know at this point, I mean, you've been doing it so long, but do you know how many, like a number, how many animal mutil mutilation cases you've investigated? How many dead cows? <laughs> <laughs> how many dead cows? Oh, I don't know. You know, I personally have investigated. Uh, Probably, uh, I don't know, since I've been out here in Colorado, at least three, four dozen, I guess. I don't know. I'd have to look. Wow. It's, it's basically, you know, you do one and there's another. You do one and there's another. It's probably more than that because uh, back uh, two years ago, I did one. There was one case where we had eight cows at one time. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you know, you almost have a dozen right there. And that right. was just investigation. The one I just did uh, ended last year, that was two cows. So, um, yeah, you know, tell I'm, us about this case. This was near Trinidad, right? Yeah, this was right, this, this one's fascinating. This is pretty cool. Um, what happened was on uh, December, it was kind of interesting because I think it actually happened on my birthday on 12 12. I got a call on 12 13 of last year from uh, the rancher that said that you know he looks like that he had a mutilation, but he's not quite sure because there's an animal 30 feet away from it that's alive. But it's laboring. It looks like it has some type of internal injury. So this particular rancher had you know, seven or eight mutilations in the past. And I've done investigations for him. Um, oh, probably around um, six of those because the other two were like 20 years, 20 years ago before I actually you know, moved to Colorado. And 
And so I said, okay, you know, let me know what you, you know what you think, and then give me a call if you think it's a, you know if it's a mutilation, and then I'll come down and check it out. When he calls me a couple of days later, and he says, well, the second cow he tried to save, but it looked like it had internal injuries, so he had to put it down. And you know, he was able to move the cow from from a location where it was laying down, struggling, to just another twenty five feet away on the opposite side of the of the dead animal that was the mutilation. And but you know he had unfortunately had to shoot it, and and so I said okay now we have cow that you just put down that has no markings on it, and then you have another cow that has all these unusual markings on it from you know uh, from the proposed mutilation. It says, well let's let's do this. It's, it's too late for me to go down there and take any bio samples or anything on the first cow because I have to get there within twenty five to 32 hours somewhere really before the bio samples can really work at the lab. So I said, let's just do a comparison analysis. We'll just let it go until after Christmas and I'll come up after Christmas. And uh, temperature has been anywhere between the low twenties and, and low thirties. So we're not going to get too much decomposition, you know, with the animals. And I'm going to do a comparison analysis and see the differences between the two. And so, lo and behold, you know, we go up on the 30th, me and, and uh, Matt Morgan, who's on my team. And there's a one cow still has all the unusual, you know, marks on it, the, you know, the, the missing eye, uh, uh, missing, well, missing tongue. And the eye, well, actually, not only was the eye missing, but it was cored out because all around the, uh, the side of the eye, it, there was a cord. It's different. Usually when eyes are just missing, sometimes the birds, most of the time the birds will just pick them out. But this one, when they're cored out and part of the eye socket is cut away, then you know that, you know, it's a, it's a true mutilation case. Mm. And then part of the jaw is missing. The anal area was cut out. The udder was cut out. And then it had this massive uh, uh, cut along the side of its neck. And it appeared that it had hit the, the ground or dropped so hard that the rib cage had separated from the backbone. And mm. this is the second time I've kind of seen that. Um, the first time was also on, on the Miller Ranch a couple of years back where an animal hit so hard it actually broke the ribs, just broke them in half. And so we know they're coming down hard and they're impacting. There's a theory about that I can talk about a little bit later. But the thing is, is, you know, now we know this is a, a real mutilation case. Well, anyway, so Matt and I show up on the 30th and we look at the cow and I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, that definitely has all the earmarks of the mutilation. We go to the second cow and it's completely untouched except for a little bit where the blood had dripped out of its mouth from being shot. The scavengers have gone in there and kind of chewed up on it. And what I liked about that was you could clearly see the chew marks from the scavengers. Now I have a comparison analysis of, of two animals that are lying 25 feet away from each other. Um, one killed roughly maybe two days, maybe three days at the most after the first one was, was found dead. 15 days later on the second cow, no damage at all. So if from based from the, the skeptics of the debunkers, if scavengers did that type of damage to the first animal, the proposed mutilation animal, they know then that that's a meat source, that's a food source. And we're talking December, it's winter, you know, there's not there's no vegetation, there's snow everywhere, you know, patches of snow. And so it's a good it's a good food source. So they're gonna come back to that animal. Now you have a second animal laying there 25 feet away. They're going to go to the second animal too. And they did scavengers just a little bit around the mouth. But 
none of the none of the uh, uh, the damage that we saw in the first cow was on the second. Uh, the anal area was still intact. The uh, the udder was still there. The eyes were still there. The tongue was was still in there. So it was it was a really really good comparison analysis to say, okay, this one's the unknown unknown death. This one's a known death. Let's compare the two. Oh, hey, look at that. They don't compare at all. So, um, you know, I learn something new every time uh, I do a, another mutilation. What's interesting about this one, though, is now why did the second animal, we have one animal already found dead, mutilated. The second animal was laboring with internal injuries. Why? We couldn't find anything external, or the, or the rancher couldn't find anything externally wrong with the animal. He tried to nurse it back to health. After two days, he could see that it was suffering too much, so so you know he killed it, but it couldn't get up, it couldn't move, and it's it appeared that it had either a broken back or something. Even though he couldn't clearly see that, it definitely had internal injuries. So here's a wild theory: Could it possibly be that that whatever you know killed the first animal, the second one was inadvertently uh, you know a part of it? Um, maybe maybe they didn't need that second animal. Somehow or another, that animal, uh, you know, uh, was a, was a, a basic survivor of an attempted mutilation. Maybe it was picked up. Maybe the first animal was picked up. The second animal was picked up along with it, uh, and then and then dropped off, and then uh, had internal injuries and couldn't get up. The clear case now. This is something else too. Um, the second animal. Even though it was laying on its side, they were both laying on the same side, the right side, which is kind of that's always interesting. Uh, you could see how it was laboring; it was moving its legs, it was trying to get up. There were scuff marks everywhere. Every one of the mutilation cases that I've investigated, the animals are just laying there, and there's no movement at all. There's no evidence in the dirt that it was even struggling to try and get up. So here you also have a, a clear-cut example of one that's still alive trying to get up. Scuff marks everywhere, clearly seen on the ground. One that's dead, no scuff marks at all, no movement in the dirt. It appeared it was just placed there. So, you know, now we have really good comparison analysis. Okay, here we go. And that's that was so phenomenal. You know, that was a, a phenomenal about this particular investigation was to be able to have A and B to look at side by side to see the differences. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and um, I actually had a question somebody uh, posted on Facebook when we shared this uh, video. They were wondering about whether or not um, there was any evidence of cut hair follicles on the, well, obviously the first animal. You know, um, because it was 15 days later, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, stuff like that, you'd really have to get in and do microscopic analysis in a lot of cases if you're looking at the follicles. I couldn't mm -hmm. see. You know, I get in there with a magnifying glass kind of looking for puncture marks and stuff. But generally, the, the, the cut hair follicles are usually something that you would see under, a, uh, you know, a stereo microscope. And I've, I've sent samples in before to Colorado State University looking for specific things like that. And um, they've never mentioned anything about the follicles being cut. But it was kind of cool, though, with the previous samples. Um, all of the samples that I've taken to them, none of them showed any sign of hemorrhaging, meaning that the animal was alive when it was cut up. 
hmm. or else you would have saw hemorrhaging. So that's at least it's a good thing to think that maybe the animal was killed first before it was cut up. Uh, and that was so in, in other words, it didn't bleed out either, which also means there was no blood because <laughs> there should have been hemorrhaging a little mm-hmm. bit of it, which means the animal was was you know voided or devoid of blood. Um, but no, you know, but never any laser marks either. Um, all the all the cuts have always been clean. A couple of cases they're evenly serrated in some cases, but um, uh, no, nothing with cut hair follicles. That's a good question, though. On cases when you get there in time for biosamples, what what are you looking for? What what can what can the lab tell you from from those samples? That's a really good question. Um, the first thing that we're looking for is, is what causes the, you know, the, the unusual uh, incisions. And we're looking for anything that looks or mimics something that might be surgically done or something that maybe the, the, the vet doctors would do themselves. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing we're looking for is, I mean, in some cases, blood analysis is always something that, you know, I, I, I've tried for. But unfortunately, every one of the cases that or samples I've taken in um, – they haven't been able to really do too much with with the with the traces of blood in there to see if there was any toxicity in the in the in the blood itself. Uh, I did get an opportunity to take an animal in a couple of years back. It was a calf that was mutilated. Uh, actually, it was five days old. It was found dead. Uh, the mother wouldn't co- go anywhere near it. The reason why the rancher knew that the that there was an issue is because he walked out to check he checks on the calves every day you know especially within the first month of them you know being born and he saw the mother cow just in the field pointing in a direction just you know just mooing you know just bellowing and so he walked over to the animal and he kind of looked in the direction she was pointed and it was another field across the street and so he, he walked over there and as he walked over there the mother cow followed him. She wouldn't go in front. She was afraid to go near the calf. So she followed him to where the calf was. And he looked down and saw the calf. And it was just laying there dead. The tongue was cut out. And the anal area uh, was was cored out. So he called me. Now, he checks every day. So we knew that that happened that night. So now that's a 24-hour period. He calls me. I'm at work contracting. <laughs> and and I said, I'm out of here. I uh, basically you know, let him know that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll make up my time. And, and off I went. And I was at the rancher's house by 3 o'clock. We put the calf in the back of my pickup truck. And I drove from uh, the San Luis Valley from Trinidad all across Colorado, Fort Collins, where the university is. And by midnight, I dropped off the calf there for a complete necropsy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, you know, you talk about dedication. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that means, you know, you're serious about it. And, and I was very serious about it because this was, a, this was a great case. And I was there within that sweet period of time where now we can start looking for stuff. And so when I talked to the, the vet the next day at Colorado State University, now you have to understand the vets, they're, they're very um, businesslike and professional. And, you know, they don't like, you know, they're not going to give you opinions. They're just going to tell you what they saw. And, and that's fine with me um, because, you know, they don't want to put themselves, obviously, in, in a bad spot with, with the university. So I said during the necropsy, um, what did you see? How much blood was in there? He says, well, there was, there was no blood in the cavity area when he opened the calf up. And I said, what the heart looked like? And he says, well, the heart was collapsed. I knew what kind of questions to ask because I've dealt with the university in the past. And, and they've also let me sit in on a necropsy on a horse. And they trained me a little bit on doing the cropsies and, 
And uh, I got, you know, basically I dissected a horse's heart. And so I kind of know what goes on. And most of the time when, uh, uh, when animals die, the heart isn't collapsed. It, it, it does happen, but, but not generally all the time. The heart is usually uh, full with, with blood. And then the blood kind of looks like a grape jelly, uh, you know, uh, after it sits for a while for all those people out there that like grape jelly. Sorry about that. But <laughs> uh so the heart, he said the heart was collapsed as if it was bled out. And I said, so what you see inside? And he goes, well, it appears that, uh, well, all the internal organs were missing except for the heart. And I think part of the part of the lung. I said, well, were they chewed out? He goes, no, it appears that they were cut out. And I said, how did they get it out? He goes, I don't know. It appears that it could have came out through the anal area, through that hole. And I said, have you ever seen anything like that before? He says, absolutely not. I've never seen anything like that. I said, how about the tongue? What did that look like? He goes, oh, the tongue was cut out. I said, have you ever seen that before? He goes, no, I've never seen that before. Now, obviously, he can't tell me his opinion, but, but you know, what I'm looking for as an investigator is I want to hear him say, I've never seen that before compared to, oh, yeah, it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And then now we know. So, I mean, he was he was really stumped. He had no idea. He goes, okay, so what happened here? <laughs> and I explained to him what happened and, and what I do. And he goes, all right. Interesting. He says, get me another one when you get a chance <laughs> so they can learn more. Uh, but basically it appeared that uh, everything was surgically cut out of the animal, pulled out of the anal area and the tongue was taken out and you know, it was, the blood was removed and the cow was just, you know, the calf was just laying there. Uh, no signs at all from any type of scavenger damage. Uh, no signs of any punctures or lacerations that have to do with, you know, someone trying to kill it. No, and so cause of death, unknown. That's exactly what he put on the lab result. That's one thing I really like about the way you operate, Chuck. Is you're going to these official labs that are, you know, um, well-known institutions compared to a lot of investigations within the uh, paranormal communities where they use labs that are associated with people also in the field. And uh, I always have a problem with that because there seems to be a lot of bias. You know, people are um, giving opinions and, oh, this is for sure because of this. Uh, Definitely um, something out of this world caused this uh, mutilation instead of how you're getting to the root facts of this is odd, something's unknown. So it is awesome. And uh, speaking on that level, I know there's a lot of these cases you've investigated that have been associated with strange sightings in the sky. Um, so what do you think the basis of this um, anomalous possible UFO activity is associated with the mutilations? Well, there's been a few of my cases, uh, the Mike Duran case back in 2009, there was light seen. Um, I think also in 2009, the uh, Manuel Sanchez case over by San Luis, uh, about a month or so before his mutant, he, he lost like four animals. Um, he saw unusual lights bouncing uh, over the mountaintops near his, you know, near his ranch, you know, or actually near the, uh, the, the area where the cows were grazing. He saw the lights a couple of months before he lost animals. And we do get that. I get that a lot. Rancher Miller. Oh my gosh. So this is, I just found this out on, on the 30th December. Um, I had talked to Rancher Miller in the past 
um, about UFOs and lights. And he'd seen, you know, he'd seen some interesting things in the past, just kind of unusual lights. And, and at one point he said, you know, I think I might, he says, do you do ghost investigations? Cause I think I might have a ghost. And I said, well, what's up with that? He goes, well, he says me and the wife were talking and his mom was there. Or, and, uh, um, whether in the living room, they heard something move in the kitchen and he looked over his shoulder and he saw something fly across in the kitchen. He walked inside there and it was a, it was a big butcher knife had flung across oh. and I'm going, Oh, okay. But okay. Now from a ghost investigation standpoint, you would probably think, okay, something's going on in there. But you see, I had some inside information from the past from talking to him that he's had unusual lights around the area seeing uh, one case there was a, a light that kind of lit up the house uh, and when he ran out to see what it was there was nothing out there and so uh, when he had told me that story you know that he was thinking ghosts well then what happened last year well actually I was talking to him last year so it actually happened in in 2014 now he was lying in his bed and he looked over his shoulder and he saw two red lights, um, kind of like the size of, of, of a cross between a basketball and a softball. And they were parallel and they were right there on his window. And it kind of lit, lit up his room and he's kind of watching it. And they kind of slowly raised up like they were going to go over the roof of the house. And as they slowly raised up to go over the roof of his house, his bed started shaking. And he thought paranormal. Well, I shouldn't say paranormal because paranormal also includes other things other than ghosts. So he thought ghosts or, or something like that are spirits. That's not what I thought. And that's not what I thought the first time when you said the knife went by because you told me about the strange lights before. What was out there, and I've been investigating um, orbs, and they're not really orbs. They're more like probes. They're mechanical probes. Some people say they're orbs. Well, that's usually associated with ghost investigations. But probes are mechanical devices that – you know, they go way, way back to the Foo Fighters during World War II, where, uh, you know, our pilots saw them, the Japanese pilots saw them, and they thought it was us, and we thought it was them, but, you know, they were following our airplanes. I interviewed a pilot a couple of years ago that worked for TWA, and he was buzzed by one. So, you know, we know they're still out there. So this thing, as it as, as the lights kind of raised up, it appeared to go over the house, but he, he just assumed it did because, you know, obviously he lost sight of it when it came out, you know, it left the window. His bed started shaking. And then his, while his bed was shaking, he got tingling. And he said it was, he was laying on his back and the right side started shake, tingling and it kind of went, it went from his right side to his middle of his chest to his left side. And then he goes, oh, what the hell? <laughs> And I'm thinking, okay, I know what's going on. And then, and then the lights came back, and, I, and he goes, oh, my God, here it goes again. And I asked him, I said, okay, so what type of bed do you have? Is it, do you have a metal frame or is it a wooden frame? He goes, oh, it's a metal frame. I went, okay. So what do you think happened, guys? <laughs> he got scanned, basically. Or, or something flew over you know, those, those, those objects as they flew over, there's a very, very strong electromagnetic field associated with them. Um, I've been using EMF meters for a long time, looking for evidence of, of, of anything that touches down or people have seen, because usually it'll leave a, a, an energy signature. So as this thing kind of went over his house, uh, that's the tingling feeling was, it was a high EMF. And because it was such a high EMF, it probably uh, reacted to the middle frame of his bed and started moving that back and forth. Uh, uh, just and 
And that's, I think, what happened. Now, I think that's what happened a couple of years back before that when the knife flew across, because I think it was just happened to be that, you know, something was going over his house and uh, uh, that was the only metallic uh, object sitting out there at the time that kind of flung it across. So there's your UFOs associated with cattle mutilations because, you know, he's had nine of them there at his ranch. Wow. And it's it's fascinating to hear that orbs still exist, but TWA does not. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I guess they don't have shareholders. <laughs> well, obviously in pop culture, cattle mutilations specifically in the animal, animal mutilation world, cattle mutilation is associated with UFOs and extraterrestrials. But now opinion time. You, based on your years and years of researching this strange phenomenon, what's your take on the extraterrestrial angle? And uh, if extraterrestrials are doing something to cattle, why do you think that is? Well, I think, you know, and I was, I think it was on Nat Geo or something. They asked me a similar question of what I thought it was. And uh, I basically on camera said, I've seen absolutely no evidence that that points directly towards aliens or extraterrestrials. And he goes, okay. And I said, then again, I've seen no evidence <laughs> that points directly towards humans either. <laughs> so, you know, it's a catch 22 or just, you know, just one of these things where um, that's what we're looking for. We have, we've always had, and I say we meaning me and my team, but basically through my investigations, um, there's, there's always been a, a, a possible light or something, not maybe every single time, but generally in those areas, but never any human activity. The human activity usually shows up afterwards in the form of black helicopters, unmarked helicopters that have a tendency of flying by um, after the fact. Uh, and some people seem to think, okay, that, um, you know, they're coming back because they're going to do more mutilations. I don't believe that's the case. I think they're running their own investigations. Uh, I think it, it was back in, uh, in September of 2014, I did an investigation and included eight animals in Walsenburg. And it was all within about a two-week period of time, week and a half, where all these animals were found dead. An interesting thing, all animals were laying on on, on their right side, I believe. And most of them, except for the ones that were moved by the rancher, were, were facing east to west, which is also another one of those strange phenomenons that I've kind of picked up on that goes to that paranormal highway thing that we'll talk about later. But so here you have a case where eight animals were mutilated, two on one ranch, four on another ranch, and two on another ranch, all within a couple of miles of each other. Um, there, there were the week after. Well, actually, the night of the last mutilation that was found, the, one of the rancher's daughters actually saw UFOs, saw strange lights. Uh, she said probably five or six lights, uh, just kind of hovering over the area, bouncing back and forth over the um, over the little mountain ridge, where some of the mutilations not her not her dad's ranches, but the other ranches where the mutilation occurred. So now we have UFO sightings or strange lights associated with. A, a mutilation. A week after the mutilation case, or the last one happened, uh, two ranchers saw four unmarked helicopters with, with spotlights searching the area, looking at the areas where the animals were mutilated. 
And so now you have military coming in after the fact and, and possibly, in my opinion, doing their own investigations, looking for something. And, you know, our military, you know, they would have high-tech instruments and, you know, infrared IR and all kinds of nifty things in those helicopters they'd be able to look at. And, and who knows what they were looking at. But they were they were looking in the area where the animals were. were matter of fact, the carcasses were still there. Well, three months prior to the first mutilation, um, air traffic control in Denver had contacted the sheriff's department, the county sheriff's department in that area, and said, "Hey, we've had two passenger jets or pilots, uh, you know, divert from that area because they're saying they're getting hit with lasers." And so um, I actually got the police report on it. So the county sheriff's department sent a deputy out there who used to work back in the day in the military with lasers. They just happened to, you know, he just happened to have done that before he was a, a deputy. And they sent him out to look for anything that was industrial like that could hit a, uh, you know, a, a jet flying at, you know, 20,000 feet in excess of 400 miles an hour. And, you know, cause them to divert not only once but twice. So now we have we have lasers or, in my opinion, maybe they weren't lasers. The pilots experience lights and uh, an intensity of what what the rancher's daughter saw months later. Right. And, and they maybe they weren't lasers. So now we have what we think were lasers or lights Then we have animal relations Then we have like helicopters and we have UFOs and. You're talking about, oh, my God, what a case that was. It was such a phenomenal case. It had everything. That was an X-Files episode <laughs> right there. Seriously. Had everything you wanted, everything you wanted. It was just a gambit of stuff. I, and, and what happened was was um, I couldn't get a hold of the ranchers to be able to talk to them when I heard about the case. And so I said, the hell with it. I just took a day off of work. <laughs> Once again, contracting. <laughs> and I drove, I drove down to Trinidad to the general area where I thought this, is, this happened. And I forwarded mine out in my pickup truck on a ranch road. And I just sat there and waited a couple hours until a truck drove by. And I flagged him down. And based on talking to that, that rancher, led me to another rancher. And, led me, and within a couple hours, I was talking to the rancher who had mutilations. And that's just pure detective work. You know, that's all that is. So, you know, sometimes you got you got to hoof it. You got to do some do some work to try and find the information you want or you need. Uh, in this case, you know, that's how I was able. It wasn't handed to me. So well, that's, that's where your deputy sheriff background comes into good play. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or back in the day when I used to stalk people. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but There's... it's a. I was going to say that's that was such a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, investigation that uh, it was just it was just ridiculous. <laughs> well, there's so much strange stuff happening with this topic, and this last case you investigated happened to be located along that 37th parallel that you like to call the Paranormal Highway. You've done so much investigation into so many strange things happening along the 37th parallel, and back in April. We heard that a Hollywood author had planned to write a book based on you and your 37th Parallel research, and that book was picked up for a feature film adaptation. So what's the status with all of that? Are there any updates that you're allowed to give us? Well, sure. Yeah, I, absolutely. Matter of fact, oh, I got to tell you, Jason, that was the craziest thing I've ever experienced in my life. You know, when, when I found out, I got, a, I got an email saying, hey, you know, you're in the Hollywood Reporter. I'm going, what? 
<laughs> a Hollywood Reporter, and a, and it was on April tenth of last year yeah. that uh, you know that it, it came out. Um, well, actually, Ben Mesrick, uh, he had the first draft done, and I and my wife and I read it during the Thanksgiving Day holidays, and then uh, within the first week of January, he had the second draft done, and uh, he just emailed me today. And he had a couple um, – uh, he just kind of polishing it up. He had, had a couple other questions he had to ask me about um, one of my investigations. And the, the interesting thing is, is I got to tell you, what, what's cool about this is the book was supposed to